Good evening. NATO beats the drums of war as the invasion of Ukraine marks one month. How the war threatens food supplies in the Middle East and who are the real war criminals with a report and a report claims Amazon forces down wages in New Jersey. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. Western leaders piled on military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine today and denounced Moscow's invasion of its neighbor as barbarism as thousands in besieged cities sheltered underground from the Russian bombardment. At an unprecedented triple summit in Brussels, NATO, G7 rich nations and European leaders addressed the continent's worst conflict since the 1990s Balkans wars. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. We will continue to impose unprecedented costs on Russia and we will reinforce allied deterrence and defense. Leaders approved our four new battle groups in Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania and Slovakia. These are in addition to the four already in the Baltic countries and Poland. Across Europe there are 100,000 US troops supporting NATO efforts and European allies and Canada have also stepped up. Allies are also equipping Ukraine with significant military supplies including anti-tank and air defense systems and drones, which are proving highly effective. Nevertheless, the measures stopped short of President Volodymyr Zelensky's calls for a full boycott of Russian energy in a no-fly zone over Ukraine. According to the United Nations, the Russian invasion unleashed on February 24th has killed thousands of people, sent three and a half million people abroad, smashed cities and driven more than half of Ukraine's children from their homes. And President Biden was in Brussels for the NATO summit. The war in Ukraine has delivered a shock to world food supplies. In particular, up to 90 percent of wheat and cooking oil imports into Lebanon come from Ukraine and Russia, where the fighting has engulfed the country's southern ports, putting a stop to shipments as imports from Russia are hampered by financial sanctions imposed on Moscow. Lebanon's food inflation is now among the highest in the world, with food prices rising by 1,000 percent. Since the invasion last month, Wheat prices have increased worldwide by 21 percent, barley by 33 percent, and some fertilizers by 40 percent. President Biden was asked about the food crisis. He says the United States, the world's third largest wheat producer, plans to increase production. But he admits there will be more pain. A long discussion in the G7 with both the United States, which has a, as a significant the third largest producer of wheat in the world, as well as Canada which is also a major, major producer. And we both talked about how we could increase and disseminate more rapidly food food shortages. In addition to that, we talked about uh, urging all the European countries and everyone else to end trade restrictions on on sending uh, limitations on sending food abroad. And so we are in the process of working out with our European friends, what it would be, what it would take to help alleviate the concerns relative to uh, food shortages. We also talked about a significant major U.S. investment, among others, in terms of providing for the need for humanitarian assistance, including food. 
That was President Biden. Meanwhile, peace activist Kathy Kelly penned an article at the website Progressive.org pointing to the discrepancies between the lack of media attention to the war in Yemen, home to the world's worst food crisis, and that's according to the United Nations. And she also pointed to the media frenzy about Ukraine as Yemen has uh, has remained sort of the hidden war. Well, I feel very moved by the coverage of what's happening in Ukraine by the uh, immense hospitality that's been extended to people fleeing Ukraine and by the coverage that has helped to build empathy for people in Ukraine. But it makes me feel an aching sadness as well because the atrocities that Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayef, respectively the despots that have been attacking, bludgeoning, brutally displacing and bombing people in Yemen never gets coverage, even to a fraction of the extent that the war in Ukraine is covered. Those atrocities are not covered, even though people in Yemen are now in their eighth year of a war that has pushed them to the brink of famine and killed thousands of children. And the United States is entirely complicit with that war. And so the double standard motivated me to write. And I want people to feel as outraged about what's happening in Yemen as they feel about what's happening in Ukraine. Why is there a disconnect, do you think? The United States has always focused on, let me use the words, worthy victims and unworthy victims. And the unworthy victims are the people who aren't worthy of the U.S. attention because often the United States is complicit in the war or itself making a war of choice against those victims and doesn't really want to look in the mirror and own up to it and and show it. So those are the people who aren't worth the attention. Mm -hmm. And then those who are worth the attention are people who are victimized by wars committed by people that the United States regards as enemies. What about the effect of the war in Ukraine on food supplies that were going to Yemen and other Middle Eastern countries? It's terrible because crops won't be planted in Ukraine very easily with the war going on. And with sanctions, the uh, crops won't be going out of Russia. And this means that Yemen will not have 38% of the grains that it has purchased before, and that means prices are skyrocketing. Aid groups are also having a very, very difficult time, and the last funding effort came out one-third at one-third of what the fundraisers had hoped to get from the various countries that are helping to keep Yemen alive. Yemenis would feed themselves if they weren't constantly finding their infrastructure destroyed by bombing and also decimated because of the blockade that the Saudis have imposed and the UAE. The Saudis and the UAE and all of the countries in that coalition really want to say we've had it with the Houthis are going to be defeated. But it's just not happening. Another parallel to Ukraine? Yes, I think you're right. And that's a, it's a tragedy. It seems that the other parallel is that the ones paying the most significant terrible price are the the children and that is peace activist kathy kelly author vicki ward 
published the book three years ago, Kushner, Inc. It's about how then-President Donald Trump's son-in-law and Mideast advisor Jared Kushner enriched himself through deal-making with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, both belligerents against the Houthi government in Yemen. Vicki Ward says both countries have their own interests in U.S. policy and with Russia, too. My book was about the fact that Jared Kushner really forged these alliances with these Gulf states as well as Israel, partly for business reasons. And we do see him now, all these years on, raising billions of dollars for a fund that will invest in American and Israeli companies. We know he's got a large amount of money from the Saudis. The irony of all of this is that the Abraham Accords, which was kind of his final signature foreign policy achievement, he would say, was to really bring together certain Gulf states, including the UAE, with Israel, to really bond them together. These are countries that have long been antagonistic over this Palestinian issue. And now, what looked like a positive a couple of years ago, now seems to be possibly a bit troubling, given how all the alliances in the world have suddenly shifted. And the invasion of Ukraine has brought it all to a head, where, as you say, you have Israel very much appearing to be sitting on the sidelines, possibly worried about Syria and Iran, therefore sort of not fully committed to Ukraine, which is tricky for them, because remember, Ukraine's president is Jewish and has made a point of sort of saying that. And Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are basically havens now of the sanctioned Russian oligarchs. The UAE, we know, is extremely upset with America, has broken off all relations, not least because they thought they were going to get a whole bunch of F-35 bombers to help them ward off attacks from the Houthi rebels, attacks on their oil reserves. The Saudis, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, who was very close to Jared Kushner and apparently remains close to Jared Kushner, has encouraged Saudis to give money to Jared Kushner's investments, is reportedly yet to actually get on the phone to Joe Biden. And yesterday or the day before, the Saudi foreign ministry said that it would not be taking responsibility for the rise in oil prices. In other words, it's not going to particularly step in to help just because now we're not taking Russian oil. Jared Kushner, whose foreign policy did look like it was conducted more out of self-interest than anything else, has wound up with an alliance that now possibly could be working against American interests in that what I reported yesterday, Israel, which is sitting sort of on the fence in this situation, but is the home to several, quite a few sanctioned oligarchs who have given a lot of money to Israel, is said to be, by my sources, the conduit for Russian money flowing then into Abu Dhabi, into the UAE, which is now no friend of the U.S., but is, thanks to Jared Kushner's Abraham Accords, great friends with Israel. It's an irony, to put it mildly. It's possibly even a dangerous irony. 
And that was Vicki Ward. She's the author of Kushner, Inc., a book about how then-President Donald Trump's son-in-law and Mideast advisor Jared Kushner enriched himself through deal-making with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Last week, President Biden made a rare statement for a president. He called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. But Lori Calhoun, the author of We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age, says the United States is a hypocrite. Since its drone wars against enemies throughout the world, especially the Middle East, Afghanistan and Iraq, is itself a violation of international rules concerning warfare, including the widespread killing of civilians and of combatants who aren't given a chance to surrender. Well, it's hypocrisy, plain and simple, because the 2003 invasion of Iraq was in some ways the precedent which made it possible for Putin to do what he is doing now in in Ukraine. The United Nations Charter, to which the United States is a party, maintains that a country may not go to war except when it has been aggressively attacked and so can respond in self-defense without first securing the permission of the UN Security Council. And the United States did not do that in 2003. What's wrong with Biden now calling Putin a, a war criminal is that the United States politicians in this case need to look in the mirror because they did exactly what Putin did in Ukraine back in 2003 in Iraq and in other scenarios as well, but most spectacularly in Iraq. Didn't they talk about bringing the Putin to the ICC, the International Criminal Court? Well, you may recall that the Bush administration spent eight years deriding the ICC and saying that they would not be a party to any organization that would consider ever indicting the United States. So, again, it's a case where what's right for us is not right for you. You have to decide. If the ICC is worthless, then you can't invoke the ICC to take Putin to task. Or you open yourself up to indictment for the war crimes committed throughout the 20-year war on terror by the United States, Britain, and other countries. Are there war criminals in the world, and how should war criminals be dealt with? Well, of course there are war criminals. The problem is that, especially since the September 11th terrorist attacks, there's been a kind of free-for-all. The Bush administration started announcing things like, our best defense is a good offense, and deriding the Geneva Conventions, redefining jihadist soldiers as unlawful combatants, which supposedly made it okay to just kill them willy-nilly in violation of the Geneva Conventions, which they also said were quaint. There are war criminals, but since 2001, it has been very difficult to say much because the United States is the role model for the rest of the world. Drone assassination is, is another example where the United States started killing people using remote control technology, people located in countries with which we were not even at war not even in an illegal war, places where there were no soldiers on the ground. And because the United States started doing this, they set a precedent. And so now everyone thinks that this is okay in the political sphere. Civilians on the ground, of course, think quite differently about the matter. But what's happened is essentially a free-for-all. I mean, I would argue that drone assassination is clearly a violation of the Geneva Conventions because the victims are not allowed the right to surrender 
and in many cases, you, soldiers are supposed to be allowed to surrender and lay down their arms, you know, rather than just being summarily executed. In many of the cases of drone assassination, this, the quote-unquote soldiers were not even armed. They were not in, in war zones. So a really good example just occurred on August 29, 2021 in Kabul, when the United States was withdrawing all of its troops, and they just killed this guy in the middle of Kabul, in the middle of the day, basically because he was driving a white Toyota Corolla, and they had some intel according to which a bad guy drove a white Toyota Corolla. But the guy turned out to be an aid worker, and they killed him along with the rest of his family, 10 people, including seven children. And nothing has been done about this. The United States comes out and says, oh, you know, oh, our bad. It was a mistake. But in fact, it was a crime. People don't know what to say about it because it's been normalized. Lori Calhoun is the author of We Kill Because We Can, From Soldiering to Assassination in the Drone Age. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. After three grueling days of sometimes hostile questions, the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is moving closer to a vote that may elevate Jackson as the first black woman on the nation's highest court. Some GOP members focused on her decisions regarding sentences of people charged with possessing child pornography, while others grilled Jackson about her decisions regarding detainees from the war on terror at Guantanamo Naval Base in Cuba. But yesterday, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker cut through a tense third day of hearings with a speech on racial progress that drew tears from the nominee and held the rapt attention of his colleagues. You did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? He didn't get here because of some dark money groups? You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being, <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. And in more New Jersey news, new research from the Good Jobs Clean Air New Jersey Coalition and United for Respect confirms that the community's fears that Amazon's expansion will harm New Jersey workers is well-founded. An analysis of U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data found that in the decade between 2010 and 2020, as Amazon rapidly expanded warehousing and delivering in New Jersey, wages in those sectors declined significantly. The director of the advocacy organization Make the Road New Jersey, Sarah Kulinan, says workers in New Jersey are fighting a secret warehouse project by Amazon at the Newark airport. Amazon has really exploded in growth in New Jersey, especially over the past several years, and even more so during the pandemic. Amazon is now, we think, the largest private employer in New Jersey, and it's doubled its footprint over the course of the pandemic, building more than 15 delivery stations and warehouses across the state. New Jersey has more Amazon warehouses per capita than any other state in the country. We often hear from elected officials, from Amazon spokespeople themselves, that Amazon is bringing good jobs and good for our economy and good for workers. What we know from conversations with workers and what this data has shown is that actually that's not true. When Amazon comes to a community, wages actually decline in the relevant industries. Our report found that in the years between 2015 and 2020, when Amazon's growth really skyrocketed in New Jersey, wages for delivery and courier workers declined 10% when adjusted for inflation. And for warehouse workers, their wages declined even more, 17% across the state. So it really calls into question 
this idea that Amazon is a job generator, that it's good for the economy, that it's good for workers. What we're seeing is the opposite. Has there been resistance to the construction of these warehouses? Amazon's facing vast opposition for building warehouses, delivery stations. And most recently in New Jersey, Amazon's attempting to build secret air hub at the Newark airport. They entered into negotiations with the Port Authority to build the hub, take over two massive warehouses to launch an air hub. And there was no public comment on the deal. There was no consultation with communities surrounding the airport. We've been organizing members of Make Third New Jersey who live in Elizabeth with community members in Newark, environmental justice groups, labor groups to push back against the air hub. There was no public comment on the deal, no public input. And Amazon is just far too big in our state. We need to reel it back. We need to make sure that it's respecting workers' rights and that it's respecting the environment and our health. So we've been organizing. We've had multiple rallies. Last week, we delivered thousands of petition signatures to the Port Authority. We also have the support of local mayors and local elected officials pushing back against Amazon here in New Jersey. We're having a rally on Saturday in Elizabeth with local community members to push back against the secret Amazon Air Hub. The director of Make the Road New Jersey, Sarah Cullinane. Newark Mayor Ross Baraka recently wrote in a letter to the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, that controls the airports and the ports that service the tri-state area. He said, it is my hope that you can work with our administration and with local organizations like the Good Jobs Clean Air Coalition. They are Newark residents, community leaders, and environmentalists who live and work in the communities surrounding Newark Airport, and they represent thousands of residents in these neighborhoods. The planned project would give Amazon a 20-year lease to build two 250,000-square-foot air cargo facilities next to the airport, securing a air hub for Amazon as the company quickly ramps up its operations. And yesterday, the third day of hearings into the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, GOP Senator Marsha Blackburn grilled the nominee about how she might rule on a crucial law, the War Powers Act. It's a law dating back from the Vietnam War, used numerous times and extremely controversial, limiting the power of the president to declare war without congressional approval. The statutes that govern judges and that allow for and that allow for compassionate release are policy determinations that Congress has made to permit individuals who are in various circumstances in various stages in the system to seek release. People who are detained after their final sentencing can seek something called compassionate release. People who are detained between when they've been convicted and when they're sentenced. I, I, and not to cut you off, but time's going to run out. We do have... This is a question that I have been asked so much. People, Here's a stack. These are the ones that you sought for compassionate release. There were... 1,561. I started off by explaining that given the compassionate release system and the COVID-19 pandemic, it would seem as though that was an extraordinary and compelling circumstance. But two sentences later, I say, we can't release everyone. There are people who are too dangerous to release. And so even in Wiggins, 
I decided that he had to remain incarcerated, notwithstanding his compassionate release motion. You were limited in your ability to order the release of all. That is what causes, that is a judgment issue. And that is what causes the concern with that. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, that was, pardon me, that was Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson answering questions from GOP Senator Marsha Blackburn. Earlier in that discussion, they did talk about the War Powers Act, a very important discussion. That clip referred to a question about compassionate release of prisoners held in jails throughout the United States, federal prisons during the height of the COVID pandemic. As you might remember, there was some discussion and many were released, others not. And there was some discussion about uh, the release of people from circumstances like jails and prisons where uh, COVID was very, very easily transmitted. That was called compassionate release. And finally, Mayor Eric Adams announced today that local performers and pro athletes would no longer be required to be vaccinated to play in city venues, changing an exemption that had kept Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving off the court. Adams said the policy left city teams at a competitive disadvantage and that expanding the vaccination exemption from just out-of-town performers and athletes to locally-based ones would help the city's economic recovery. Adams' decision comes as COVID-19 cases are rising slightly citywide. And that's some of the news for Thursday, March 24th, 2022. The news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>